Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to discuss uh, more about um, more about love and uh, Hashem's uh, love for us, and just get into the whole idea of what uh, what love is about, and um, also talk more about Elum and uh, the the coming year, and uh, how to prepare and just how to just conceptualize everything. So. So I was giving I was giving a talk yesterday, and I was talking about love and 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 particularly God's love for us, and 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 I realized in a conversation with someone afterwards that um, and I've heard this before by the way, but I just think it's worth addressing head on that for a lot of people the idea this idea that God loves us. As it doesn't feel so Jewish. Like a lot of people just like kind of bristle because they feel like, wait a second, that doesn't. Re- yeah, is that is that really our path? You know, and it's like, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. And um, you know, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's kind of funny that um, that that somehow we should be disconnected with that. But at the same time, it uh, it makes perfect sense. That we're disconnected with that because the probably the biggest breakthrough and it's something that I'm talking about all the time. The biggest breakthrough that all of us have to make is personalizing our relationship with God. And if you think of it, you you must think of God as an entity that you're relating to as opposed to an abstraction which exists somewhere up there, wherever up there is. Up there means not here. <laughs> up there means not with me. And even if you sort of like say, well, but you understand that God is everywhere, then people will eventually, if, you know, if they're with you, they'll go, oh, yes, 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 I understand all these things. But for them, it's just an intellectual conceit. It's just like, it's in their mind. But they don't feel it, and they don't understand it, and it certainly doesn't guide their behavior. So, so this is the breakthrough that we have to make. Now, now, the Rambam, who is known as the rationalist, the consummate rationalism, rationalist in, in Torah thought, Maimonides, he talks about a person has to be in a place in terms of their relationship with God where they're lovesick. They're literally, they're literally walking around lovesick. So that's the consummate rationalist speaking. Okay? So if you say, well, this is... Yes, but this is not the, the normal path or the normative path or this is not the straight path or what you're talking about. No, the opposite. It absolutely is. But in our generations, people have become so disconnected. And for good reason. You know, the Holocaust is a great reason to be disconnected if you're looking for a reason. You know, you're like, wait a second. How can, how can the God who did that be a God who loves us and who is involved in our life? You know what I mean? It's, it's, it, how do we wrap our minds around that? Well, it doesn't stop being true. You know, it just doesn't stop being true. And we'll get an understanding of this after 120, and then we'll go, oh yeah. You know, one of the, one of the great teachings um, that I've ever heard is that after 120, right after our lifetime, we're going to get all of the answers to all of our questions, but we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Right now, we don't have all of the answers to all of our questions, but we can do something about it. So basically, the bottom line is, is that, you know, we have this little window of time. It's just like this tiny moment of time, which is our lives. And we get to do something about it. And if we are just, you know... There's certain phrases, like one of, one of these phrases is too smart by half, right? Or smart, smart, stupid. These are, these are phrases where one's intellect actually drives them to doing the wrong thing. But they're smart people mistakes. You know, there's certain things that, mistakes that dumb people will never make. Only smart people will make these mistakes. But they're still mistakes, they're wrong, and they're no less right because one arrived at them through, you know, exalted references to various philosophers and things like that. The bottom line is, they're wrong, the smart person, and the dumb person is also wrong. 
So, basically, what I'm trying to say is, is that one of these smart people mistakes that, that people make is that, you know something, until I'm 1,000% sure about something, I'm not going to act on it. Now, that's, that, in certain areas, that makes sense, right? But in terms of actually trying to change the world for good and embracing a path of truth, that it ultimately doesn't make sense. One has to decide what makes sense and then go for it. And because it's an illusion that you're ever going to know 1,000%. That's an illusion. And that's a formula, even though it sounds intelligent, well, let me be absolutely sure, you'll never ever be absolutely sure. So just eliminate that as even a possibility. It doesn't exist. And in fact, it's even more than that. That's not because, that's not because something's wrong with this system. God deliberately constructed the world that way. That was God's intent. You understand? That's not just sort of like some quirk in the system where it's sort of like, oh, sort of like we forgot to pave the road one mile further. God was like, got distracted. And he was going to finish paving the road, but it goes down into an endless abyss instead. You know, that's not what it is. God deliberately constructed the world so that we make that step. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. So, so in other words, if it feels right, and it makes sense, and it's our tradition, then go for it. Just, just go for it. I mean, that's, 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 that's the best advice that I can give, you know? Um, because those type of absolutely airtight guarantees... And I'll tell you something else. There is an interesting... People who try to prove God, people who try to prove Torah, I just, you know, ultimately, ultimately, I, I, I don't know that someone can argue someone else into this level of enlightenment. But there is a very interesting sort of like X factor. And that is the experiential element, which is that, you know, there are a lot of people who are like PhDs, Right. And you can give them a million arguments and things like that. And yet, for a lot of times, if they sit down at a Shabbos table and they drink some chicken soup, they're like, this is the right path. What, what an atmosphere can do and what just feels right, it's just something beyond. You're tapping into something beyond. And it's... And so... So when it feels right, that's, that's a very, very powerful thing. And, um, and all these things, I have to give a thousand caveats to everything that I'm saying. Because you can sit at a table with people yelling at each other, and it can feel wrong, and someone can put too much salt in the chicken soup, and it tastes terrible. Or you can be a vegetarian, and I don't want the chicken soup. You know, there's a, there's a, thousand, there's a thousand PSs to everything that I'm saying. But basically, what I'm trying to communicate more than anything else is that, that at a certain point, it makes sense just to go, you know what, that's it. I'm going for it. And, um, and so let's, let's continue. I want to I talk about something that, that ties into this. And it's just something that just kind of came to me. And, uh, you know, you can take it or leave it. But the concept, I think, is interesting, which is that there are different levels of infinity. And I'm talking mathematically right now. Um, a lot of us are just used to the concept of infinity as just like numbers that go on without end. So one, two, three, four, a thousand, a million, a trillion, whatever keeps on getting bigger, 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 bigger. And that is, that is the expression mathematically of infinity. Just that, that number that just keeps on going at the end of the spectrum. But there's something called um, irrational numbers. And so I'll give you uh, probably the most famous example of that is, is pi, right? So pi is 3.14159. And if I were smarter, I'd be able to take it another 100 digits or so. But it never repeats. And there are many, many numbers like that, that that never repeat. In other words, no pattern emerges. It just stays random forever. 
It just goes on and 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 on. And no pattern ever emerges. So so that means, think about it, between let's say that's three point one, right, and then more. So between the number three and the number four, there's an infinite sequence. See, in between numbers, or between three and three point two, there's an infinite sequence. In other words, there are these levels of infinity that exist between the numbers. It's not just there's one aspect of infinity, which is the largest number that you can ever possibly fathom. There are levels of infinity that exist all over the place, all over the place, between numbers. Now, how am I relating this to God? Because God takes a piece of himself, so to speak, and he puts it in us. That's our soul. So we have an aspect of infinity within us. But it's not the full infinity of God. It's one of these ones between 3.1 and 3.2. Right? That's, so, so with that in mind, you can get sort of an interesting viewpoint of what a human being is. We are godlike. We do have this aspect of infinity. Right? But it's not the infinity of God's full infinity. But it's no, it's, it's no less infinite. Now, with that in mind, there, there, there are great benefits to this and, a great, and great sort of like downsides to this. So, what are the benefits? The benefits are we're capable of imagining incredible things. Right? We're, and, and accomplishing amazing things. The downside of it is we might actually think we're God because we have this, this, this aspect of infinity to us which is a very real thing. It's not just arrogance, but it can lead to arrogance. You see, there's a very amazing teaching that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Beis Yaakov, the second Ishvitzer Rebbe, which is, basically he says like this, that deep down... Deep down, everyone... Now, I'm not talking about on an intellectual level or even on a conscious level. This is like deep, deep, deep down. Everyone thinks that they actually created themselves. You know, we know intellectually that we've got parents and that that's where we came from. But deep, 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 deep down, everyone actually thinks they created themselves. With that in mind, it gives us a bit of a perspective, perhaps, why... The rabbis say that the mitzvah of honoring your parents is the hardest mitzvah in the entire Torah. Because I think on a deep soul level, there's this idea, they didn't make me. They deserve all that. They really deserve all that. I made me. You know? So, so anyway. So this, when we get in touch with the infinity of our souls, basically, there are pluses and minuses. The, the pluses are just this amazing ability to comprehend. The downside is actually thinking you're God. This is, this is the downside. And what does it mean to think that you're God? So, no one, I think, actually thinks that they're God. Right? But, but the way I would say it, it, it manifests itself in a practical way, is that we think that we're the ultimate arbiter. That we get to decide in the end. We have the final say. And this ties in to a very, very interesting uh, Gomorrah about Shluach Khan, which is the um, shooing away of the mother bird. So now listen to this. A fascinating, fascinating thing. You see, we have a mitzvah that you shouldn't take the mother bird with the eggs at the same time. But rather, you should shoo away the mother bird, and then you take the eggs, okay, for, for your own use. And if you do that, the Torah rewards you with the mitzvah of long life. Now, now that's, that's a very special thing. And the average person who looks at that would, would say the following thing. 
look how compassionate the Torah is. Look how compassionate God is. That, you know, obviously God wants us to eat and everything like that, and he's given the animal kingdom to us. And, but, at the same time, God is very compassionate, and he wants it to be done in a beautiful way. So, shoo away the mother bird, and then take the eggs. So, so the Gemara says the following, something almost shocking, actually. It says that if you look at that mitzvah and say that this is God being compassionate, whoever says that should be silenced. You should tell them, don't say that. Don't say that. So, it's shocking, because this seems to be the, <laughs> the epitome of God's compassionateness. But listen to what the sages have in mind with this, okay? So, Gomorrah. The explanation is as follows. You see, if you say that that's compassionate, and it certainly seems compassionate to us, right? If you say that that is compassionate, when you see something that you decide is not compassionate from God, you'll say, God, that that isn't compassionate. You see, you will then empower yourself to be the standard by which you judge all of God's actions, and you then become the final arbiter. And isn't that the downside of your soul's infinity? Isn't that another aspect of making yourself into God, because you're making yourself into the final authority, the final arbiter? Very interesting. Very, very interesting. And I think letting go of that sort of like being the final judge is really one of, the, one of the steps that we can take to literally getting wings and flying with God. Because the ideal is, it talks about it in Pirkei Avos, the ideal is to make God's will our will. You know, God says, make, make me you. Make me you. You know, just... Transform your consciousness into my consciousness. See, I heard, I think it was the Kutzka Rebbe who said that, that the reason why learning Gomorrah is so great, right, a page of Gomorrah, is because basically you get to think like God. You know, it's like you sort of start to transform your analytical skills in a heavenly way. And... And this is a very great thing. This is a very great thing. And if you think about it, if you think about it, why would you want anything else? In other words, the God who structured all of the heavens and who made each and every one of us and who keeps the world going and who keeps us going, why, why wouldn't we want that? Why wouldn't we want to tap into that and be that? So, so then the work then becomes, you know, managing your own humanity. See, what, what a lot of people don't understand is they think that, that this is a formula to becoming a robot. But that's, that's not what is being asked of us. Because the truth is, is that to, to do what I'm talking about, to make his will your will, involves so many constant, ongoing, creative choices that it's just, you know, if you're really doing it right, you're thinking and you're innovating all of the time. You know, because life is an obstacle course. So, so, so it's not like, for instance, okay, I'm going to make God's will my will, which means I'm behind the wheel of my car and I'm just going to go straight. But you know something? If you're just going to go straight in an obstacle course, there's a ditch in front of you, and then there's a wall behind the ditch, and then there's like, who knows what, there are mines, and you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. You know, you have to turn this way, and then turn that way, and then jump this way. You know? That's, that, that's what it is. I actually jumped out of a moving car one time. You know? I was, I was, <laughs> I was parking my car. And I was distracted, and I was on a steep incline. 
So you have to imagine a hill going all the way up, and it was very steep, and I was in a Volvo, like an old Volvo, which is a very heavy car, right? They're like tanks, you know? So, so I'm in this old Volvo at the top of the hill, and I didn't do something very basic, like put the car in park. I think that that's what I forgot to do. <laughs> I didn't know that, though. I, I thought I had done that. And then I turned off the motor, and, and the car started rolling backwards down the hill. And I remember I put up the emergency brake, but that didn't do it, and the car was picking up steam. And I thought to myself, I'm about to go into an intersection and get killed. And so I just thought quickly, and I undid my safety belt, opened up the car door, and dove out of the car. And someone who was watching said that the car almost ran over me. My own car almost ran over me. You know, it reminds me, I once went to traffic school, and the, the, the teacher was saying, was trying to figure out why everyone was in traffic school, and he said, I want to tell you my two favorite stories. He, he had something called his uh, Hall of Shame. <laughs> and one was... One was, he said, why are you here? And the guy says, um, I, uh, I was speeding. He said, how fast were you doing? He said, 110. He said, you're doing 110 on the freeway? He goes, yeah. He goes, he said, but that's not why the cop got mad. He said, you see, I was towing a boat. You know, it's like towing a boat on the freeway doing 110. That guy was basically the, the equivalent of a like a rocket, basically. Like, you know, one of those things you put on your shoulder and shoot, you know? It's like, anyway. The other one, though, is, is even nuttier. He said that someone was driving and um, he, he was reaching for a box of tissues in his back seat and he couldn't quite get his tissues. And so he realized, oh, wait a second, you know something? I have, um, I have cruise control, yeah. Which he, I guess, thought is automatic pilot. It's not automatic pilot. It's that's something else. So he hits cruise control, and then he climbs into the back seat to get the tissues. Then he notices the car is starting to weave on the highway. So he goes, "Oh, I know what to do. I'll put my safety belt on." So he puts the safety belt on in the back seat. The car drives off the highway, rolls down a hill, and the police come. And they see there's a guy in the back seat, but they can't find the driver. And they're yelling at him, where's the driver? And he says, I'm the driver. And they thought that he had had a terrible concussion. You know, so. So anyway, getting run over by your own car, that's that takes some work, doesn't it? You know, so anyway. The, the car actually uh, turned into someone's front lawn and went into this very thick bird of paradise bush and kind of got stopped there. So it actually didn't do much damage. And uh, I, I needed stitches, but, you know, who knows if I had been in the car, what would have happened? So, so anyway, what I'm trying to say, though, is is that when we talk about making God's will our will, you don't have to worry about this is not a formula for becoming a robot because life is this amazing obstacle course. And going straight, just I'll just go straight, is not an option. It's simply not an option. And you, when you learn how to live within the various teachings and things like that, you have to be enormously creative. You know, so so there's so many examples. There's so many examples. But I'll, I'll, I'll just give you one which is just very basic and simple, which is that if your mother or grandmother makes you some food and you don't like it because it doesn't taste good and she asks you, do you like it? The answer is yes, you like it. The answer is not the Torah tells me to tell the truth 
and I must tell the truth? The answer is yes. Thank you so much. It's delicious. That's the answer. So you have to think quickly. Right? And then also you might really not like it. So then you have to overcome your emotions in the moment. So that shows so much self-mastery. One, and then you have to say it like you actually mean it. You know, so there's... And this is not instructions to lie, but there are certain tiny instances where we are supposed to do things like that in order to maintain peace, in order to maintain shalom. But that obviously is not what we should do in business and, and various other things um, where, where the rule is to tell the truth. So, in other words, one has to balance various teachings, one has to think quickly, one has to have a mastery over their emotions. These are all incredible creative acts and, 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 and so, and, and they're very rewarding when you're able to, to do them, you know? And there should always be an internal debate, you know? Like, for instance, whether you want to correct someone. Let's say someone says something incorrect. You know, do you, maybe you don't have to tell them at that moment. Maybe you tell them later, Right? Maybe you make sure that when you tell them that, that, you're, that you're alone with them so that other people don't hear, so that they're not embarrassed. So when is the moment? When is the right time? When do I move? When do I stay? And by the way, on a very deep level, it says, I learned, I heard it in the name of the Ari, that in the Garden of Eden, this was the faculty, when to act and when not to act. If you think about it, all... All human activity can be boiled down to those two things. When do you act? When do you not act? And that that in the Garden of Eden was that that aspect of ourselves which was damaged when we ate from the tree of knowledge. So in other words, the most fundamental aspect of our operating system was damaged by eating from the tree of knowledge. When to act, when not to act. And that's what we're still kind of working on, you know? And when in doubt, you know, there's so many beautiful drushes, so many beautiful homiletic phrases that are said and explanations that are said about stepping on the glass under the chuppah, right? And, um, you know, probably the, the most classic one is that even in our time of joy, we're remembering Jerusalem and everything like that. All beautiful, all, all right. But do you know what the official, official explanation is? It's rarely said, because it's kind of a bummer. So I think people either don't know it, or they don't want to say it under the chuppah. You know, because it's a little, kind of, it's a bit of a bullseye in terms of relationships. But the real official, official explanation, not that there aren't many accurate explanations, is that, you know something? When you say certain things, you break it and they can't be repaired just like this glass can't be repaired. And so you have to be husband and wife. You better be careful with your words to each other. Because certain things you say, you can't get them back in your mouth. And now that you've heard it, you probably understand why people don't say that. Because it's sort of like, okay, now that we've brought down everyone, you know, cue the clarinet guy, you know. (laughs) But that's what it is. But that's what it is. You know, so that, so in general, if you're thinking, should I say this, should I not say this? As a rule, don't say it. As a rule, just don't say it. And because there are plenty of opportunities to say it at another occasion. Right? And then you at least have the option n- just never to say it, or now this is a better time to say it. And then just another bit of advice, which is that when a person is doing the wrong thing, at that moment, it's usually not the best time to tell them, that that's what I'm talking about. Right? Usually, because then the person is in the moment, and they're very invested in what they just did, and it's just normal for people's ego to kick in, and people will automatically become defensive. So that's not the time to correct someone right when they did that thing, right? And then, you know, 
And then sometimes people just lapse. Sometimes they themselves did the wrong thing. And then they'll, they'll realize it on their own afterwards. And behaviors take a while to correct. Usually speaking, if, you, if someone is doing something and it's, it bothers you, and then you say to them in the right time, hopefully in the right way, you know, that thing that you're doing, you know, bothers me, and the other person accepts it, you should just understand that it will usually take a period of time for that person to adjust that behavior. So in other words, when they do it again, they'll go, hey, you did it again! <laughs> well, yeah, because it's hard to fix, you know? And maybe they didn't realize that they did it again. But it is, it is hard to fix things when... That's, 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 you should just know that, you know? And then, you know, so, so that's, that's, that's what it is. Okay. Another thing, as long as we're talking about love and relationship advice, let me just throw out a couple more things, because I think these are important to know. And these are in all of our relationships. There are two words. I saw this in a book. I wish I could tell you who said it, but I really try to live by this, because I, I think this is so important. The words never and always are massive bummers. <laughs> They're massive bummers. And nothing will stop you from communicating what you actually are experiencing more than if you use these words. They, they, these are, they, they will backfire and ruin your message. So let me just explain what I'm talking about. You always do this. The person does not always do that. They simply do not always do that. Now, they might do it more often than you like. They might be wrong in doing it. And both parties may agree that they're wrong in doing it, but they don't always do it. So let me tell you why that this is so negative. Because let's say the person is correct. Let's say the two of you guys discussed it. And I'm talking about not just husband and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends. I'm talking about friends. Everyone. Let's say you've discussed it and the person has actually agreed to, to try to change, whatever it is, okay? So we're talking about two people who are well-intentioned well right now. And you say, you always do this. The other person will then leave the point. What's the point? The point is that they just did it. And they were wrong in doing it. And they will now argue a different thing entirely which is that they don't always do it. And so the whole purpose of the conversation, to get them to change what they had just done, that conversation now will, cannot take place. It cannot take place because the other person is totally invested in convincing the wronged person or the aggrieved person that they don't always do it. So now the conversation absolutely can't take place. But neither party is going to realize the mechanics of what I just described. So this person is now going to become, the person who is aggrieved is now going to become increasingly frustrated because they're going to say, you don't understand what I'm talking about. And the other person does understand what they're talking about, but they're too busy saving their reputation, rightfully so. And now the first person who has been aggrieved will come even more frustrated. Because you don't understand what I'm talking about. Because all you want to talk about is other times. Right? And again, the mechanics of this will not be clear in the moment, but this is what's going on. And the exact same thing is true with the word never. You never do this. And the other person is going to go, what do you mean I never do this? What about that time and that time and that time? And then the first party is going to be saying, no, I'm talking about this time, this time, this time. Why are you deflecting the conversation? And now even though the other person who may have done the wrong thing might be positively inclined and want to correct their behavior, they're not even going to begin to discuss that. And the bottom line is that they might actually agree. You're right, I did that thing. So, so please, please, please be very, very careful with these uses of the words always and never. And I think that we can certainly apply this to God and getting back to this notion of, of God's tremendous love for us. Because oftentimes, what we do is we, we zero in on a particular need that we have, and our senses is that, God, you never do this. Or the opposite, if something is going wrong, God, you always do this. Right? We, we do it with God all of the time. And it's so unfair to God. 
Look at what God, look at everything God is doing for us. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how much God is doing for us. All of the time. So, so, so that's an obstacle in our relationship with God too, and we should be very careful with that language in terms of how it influences our relationship with God and our perception of God. Um, so, so I want to get back to this, this notion of love now. And, and, and why, you know, there's, there, there's an example that the Gomorrah brings, that uh, there was a, I heard this in a talk, I don't think I ever saw it inside, but I think it was Rabbi Akiva was bathing in these waters, and the Romans, I guess, had set up a statue in these waters, like, um, you know, like an, an idol or whatever it is, in these, in these waters. And I guess one of the students came to him and said, why are you swimming in these waters? Right? Look. And he says back to the student, God made these waters. Like, what, what is, God made these waters. So these people want to lay claim to these waters and, and say it's in the name of this idol? What does that have to do with the fact that God made these waters? These are God's waters and they're beautiful waters and I want to swim in these waters. You see, there's this weird territorial thing that, that we have. And it's like sort of like this concept that God loves us. We feel like, oh no, like someone else took that. Now they have it. What are you talking about? God, you know, that's, you know, it's like, can you imagine I like walk into the, you know, I walk into the Louvre and I take the, the sort of the encasing off the Mona Lisa and I take my pen and I sign Saks over Da Vinci, right? It's a sax. You're impressed, I can tell, you know? It's like, it's not a sax. I did it because I signed my name on it, because I sort of like planted my flag on that thing, suddenly it's mine. It doesn't belong to me. God loves us to pieces. That, that, that concept belongs to anyone else other than God. So don't don't be weirded out by this by this notion. This is a, a very real thing. And and what I'm saying is is that you see over the generations because of the exile and so many aspects of the exile we've gone through really hard times in terms of this love affair this 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 relationship that we have with God. We've suffered. We've really suffered. And you can say, well, that, doesn't that have to mean that God doesn't love us? It, well, it doesn't, because somehow it's all for our good. And somehow these are all fixings that need to be made, being administered by the one who loves us the most so that we can get back to a good place. That's what all these trials and tribulations are for. You know, if a doctor performs some sort of procedure on you and it hurts and it takes a while to heal, you don't say to the doctor, and then you get better, you don't say to the doctor, why do you hate me? Why do you hate me? You, you took a knife and cut open my stomach. Now it hurts me. And what did the doctor do? The doctor saved your life. So, so this is us and God, but over a period of time, there's this feeling that, oh, you know what? I can't even relate to God, you know? And then that's given over from parents to children, and then the children give it over to their children. And then this is kind of what, what then we inherit these ideas. And we've got to get back to what the real truth is. Now, I'll give you another example of this, something that I noticed in the zeitgeist today that I believe. I believe that technology is also alienating us from God in a very sort of strange, particular way. I understand that in some aspects it's probably bringing us closer, but that's, I'm not concentrating on that right now. I want to show us just for a moment how it's alienating us. Because we can do so much on our own right now, and so many increasingly exotic and fabulous and mind-bending things on our own, 
it's instilling with us, again, on a very subtle level, a notion that we don't need God, or God is not involved with these things, that I'm the master of all of these realms. And so, in a weird way, it's sort of like empowering us in this negative way. Like, like what I was talking about earlier, that we have an aspect of God's infinity within us, but it's not the ultimate infinity. In other words, that's, a, that's, a, that's an empowerment that, that we can abuse if we think that we're ultimately in control. And I think that our mastery over things, and especially now that, um, now that all this technology has become ever more personal, right? Because there's an app for everything, right? Every, you know? So, so now, you know, it's not just like the geniuses at IBM or something like that who are making like these mainframes for big corporations, it's like everyone is tailoring things for you personally. So now you're in the driver's seat. So you feel this personal mastery. And I think on some level, again, there, there, there are positive sides to this, but I'm not concentrating on that right now. On a personal level, it just seems like God has less and less to do with your life because you can accomplish all these amazing things. And it's all in your hand, literally. So... So now let's get back to this concept of Elul. You see, Elul, Elul leads up to Rosh Hashanah. And Elul is Ani Lidodi Vidodi Li. Now there are other, so let me just translate that. Elul obviously is the name of the Jewish month. And it's an acronym, the Rosh Tevos, for I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. Right, which is from the Song of Songs, Shir Shirim, right? The, the, the ultimate personalizing of our relationship with God, the Song of Songs, which is talking about, of course, two, two lovers interacting with each other. And that's us and God, right? So, so why this acronym? Isn't it interesting that if we're talking about God's love for us, well, that's ongoing, that's 12 months a year. Why? And by the way, this Aleph, Lamed, Vav, Lamed, that's how you spell Elul, there are many other phrases in the Torah that fit into, those, into, the, into that sequence. Other phrases. And so, but, but somehow, Anil Dodi Vidodi Li is the one that we all seized on and the one we all embrace. Why that one? Because it's no coincidence And this is, again, the breakthrough that we have to make in terms of our personal lives. There's no coincidence between the fact that God is emphasizing His tremendous love for us right before Rosh Hashanah, a.k.a. Judgment Day. In other words, the very thing which is sort of most alienating about this notion of God that people have in their mind of like some old man on a throne with lightning bolts who's ready to zap us or whatever it is. You know, when the decrees are coming down for the year, who will live, you know, and all the rest. You know, that is the most, for many of us, the most alienating, alienating and reinforcing the, the worst aspects of what our notion of God is. And the reason why we're not interested in cultivating a relationship with him to begin with. So what is God saying right beforehand? I mean, I love you. I love you to pieces. I'm crazy about you. What did I make you for? I made you because I love you. This whole thing that's going on is a relationship. It's a love thing. That's everything that's going on. And Rosh Hashanah, you know what I'm going to do for Rosh Hashanah? I'm going to give you another year of life, God willing. And I'm going to give you the tools that you need to do what you need to do. But figure out what you need to do. Because if you really want to be an astronaut, stop being a plumber. Because if all you're going to be is a plumber, even though you're talking about being an astronaut, I'm going to give you a hammer this year. I'm not going to give you a spaceship this year. If you really want to do X, act like X. Do X. Then I will give you what you need to accomplish X. But if all of your actions are pointing in another way, that's what you're really communicating to me that you want. So we have to lead. We have to lead. You see, there's a very interesting dynamic 
which the rabbis, the sages, discuss in terms of relationships. And this is very practical, and we can apply it to our own love affairs, but, but I really am talking about us and God right now, but this is very practical advice for, for uh, husband and wife and things like this, which is, the rabbis have pointed out that the more you give, the more you love. And Western society is so materialistic that the message that we get, and also just sort of, it's, it's kind of ingrained in our own sort of like, own physicality, is what we think intuitively is the more we receive, the more we will love. So in other words, what we tend to think is, what is the measure of your... In other words, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you want me to love you? What have you done for me lately? That's how we think. And the reality is, is that the more you give to the other person, the more you will come to love them. And if you think about your relationships, and you think about the sort of the golden age, the golden age, the honeymoon period, if you will, of your relationship, that's the time when you're giving to the other person the most. In years from now, you'll look back on that period, and oftentimes you'll think, that's the time when I was receiving the most. Well, that's because both parties were both giving the most at that time. That's what was generating the love. They were each giving the most at that time. So, so that comes down to us and God as well. You see, when we invest in the relationship with God, and when we invest in, in sort of this self-actualization, when we figure out what it is that we actually want to do and what it is that we want to be, and we take positive measures toward giving God that, that thing, that demonstration of what it is that we really are or strive toward, then God gives it back. The more we invest in the relationship, the more we feel his presence. And that's, that's a great thing. You know, there's, there's something that I just, I love so much, and it just, I, I feel like it just sums everything up. That I heard, I, I wish I could tell you from who, I think it was from Rabbi Berger at, at Asha Torah. It was definitely at Asha Torah. But um, the thought is like this. Very interesting uh, equation for, for relationships. The one who is least involved in the relationship is the one who determines the level of the relationship. Now, I'll, I'll explain what that means. I'll give an example. Let's say you have a, like a parent and a child, for instance, and the parent um, calls the child five times a day, and the child returns the call one time a month. You don't have a five times a day relationship, you have a once a month relationship. You see, the, the, the level of the relationship is determined by the one who is less involved, Right? So now let's apply that to us and God. With us and God, the phone, God is constantly calling us. The phone is literally constantly ringing. Constantly ringing. By virtue of the fact that we're alive and our heart is beating, that means that the phone is ringing. That means that God is actively demonstrating love for us. There's no other way to put it. So what we have to do then if we want to connect, a lot of people think, okay, well, listen, I want to, oh, I've been so distant. Oh, God, I want to get back to you. I, I, I don't know how to do it. Maybe I should read a book or go to a class or pick up the phone. Just pick up the phone right now. You don't have to do anything. Just right now. Right now. You don't have to. Yeah, there's the, and there's the, uh, and there's the, uh, just pick up the phone. You just say to God, God, you know, I, I want to connect. I'm sorry. I, 
I don't know what I've been up to. I don't know where I've been. I don't even know what I've been doing. I'm so sorry. I haven't been thinking about you. I haven't been doing what is in my heart to do. And I'm, I'm making a thousand mistakes. And I know I am. And I, I, I don't even know how to change right now. But all I know is that I want to connect back to you. That's all I know. All I know is that I want to be with you. And then, and then oh, yeah, all right. And then that's the beginning of something. You know? You know, it's, it's, there's, there's something, you know, like one of those things that people used to put on a poster and hang up, and I can't quote it exactly, but something about footsteps. I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is like, you know, if something changed in a relationship, who moved? Right? That's the bottom line. It's, it's us who moved. So, since the, since it's, the ball is in our court, we can, at any moment, literally any second, get things back on track. So, yeah. Can you give that analogy you once did about us being an actor in God's screenplay and God liking yeah. back? Yeah, so I, I heard that from Rabbi Aaron, and so I'll do my best to, to quote him, but, but, um, but the... The idea is like this. For, for Rosh Hashanah, this is, this is another way of just understanding what's going on in Rosh Hashanah. So, you know, when it comes to script writing and things like this, you know, the, the writer, he takes the characters in a, in a certain place, right? And, and that's what it is, and writes the story and... and, and that's the story. That's the script. So Hashem, so to speak, is, is the author. And on Rosh Hashanah, in many ways, the script for the new year is, is being written. What, what's, what's going to be? Of course, don't, this isn't all fatalism. We have free choice and everything like this and all the rest. So don't take this the wrong way. Don't take it too literally. But the big difference between, say, an author sitting down and sort of just laying out what all the characters are going to do, and what God does with us on Rosh Hashanah, is that God actually, the author, actually consults with the characters. The author comes to us and says, what do you want to do? What role do you want to play in this coming year? Who do you want to be? What do you want to do? What part do you want to play? So that's an awesome thing. That's, and again, that's a very loving thing. And this is, of course, also coming on this day called Yom Adin, the Day of Judgment. So again, it's like, what is the nature of this judgment, which for so many of us is so alienating, but at the same time, when you investigate it, you realize it's just riddled with love, just filled with love. God is looking to us and saying, okay, you want to, what do you want to do? And now, listen, just, I don't know that Rabbi Aaron said this, but I'm in, in this business, so, so I'm just going to extend the, the metaphor a little bit right now. David Aaron? That's, yeah, Rabbi Aaron, Rabbi David Aaron at Israelite. So if you want to, let's say the person says, let's say the person says, you know what I want to do? I want to do this, this thing, right? Like if one of the actors were to come up to me on a TV set or something like that and say, and say, I want you to do an episode for me, and I, and, and I want to do this thing, right? Let's say, a terrible example, but just to give you an example, I want to juggle, do this big juggling number, right? You know. And then I would say back to the person, you know what my first question would be? Do you know how to juggle? <laughs> and if the person says, I don't know how to juggle, you know what? He's not going to juggle in the script. <laughs> I'm not building a whole episode around him juggling if he doesn't know how to juggle. I'm not going to do it. Right? But if he said to me, you know something? I don't know how to juggle that well, but I've started juggling, and I'm taking classes, and I'm getting better at it, and I'm really interested in it, and I'm going to, yeah, by the time that would happen, I'm going to know how to juggle I'd say, fantastic, let's go for it, let's go for it, and we'll monitor your progress and everything like that, and maybe, maybe I'd even say, you know what, 
since you've already initiated the basics and everything like that, you know, there's money in the budget for this type of thing. I'm going to bring in a juggling coach and I'm going to get your skills up and you'll be in shape for the time that we do this. That's what I would say. So in other words, what, what, what I'm trying to point out here, and, and, and I'm, I'm adding to the thought, but I'm, I'm sure Rabbi Aaron was, had this in mind as well, is that when you imagine what role you want to play in the coming year, if you've actually taken actions toward doing that already, then that shows a level of seriousness that God says, great, you know, let's do it. Let's do it. So, and, and, then, and then, of course, you know, you've got other variables too. Is that the right time? Is that really the best path for us? All these things, okay. We're not God. We, can't, we don't know all how God decides what he decides and when he decides and what his time frame is. It's important to put that, that, that thought in as well. But nonetheless, in terms of we have to do the most that we can do in terms of that, then it's great advice. It's fantastic advice. You know, there's another bit of advice, as long as we're talking about being blessed with a good year, that, that and again, I, I can't quote the, the rabbi who said this, I'm sorry, but, but he said the following, which is that, you see, if you're playing a certain role in the community, and the community needs you for that thing, right? Then, that's a great way to be blessed with more of that thing. Right? Because, if, because God basically channels His blessings into the world through various people. And if you've demonstrated that you're playing that role and that you're critical to the community in that respect, then God says, you're doing a great job with that. I want to continue to help you be able to continue to play that role. So becoming necessary to people is a very wonderful way of receiving blessing. You know, because you're playing this great role, especially for the community. That's on a community level. Very important. Because remember, you know, America and today's society is so much about self-realization and self-actualization that it can veer toward, you know, just idol worship of the self. And, and we have to understand that we have twin aspects. All of us have twin aspects where we are our own selves and we have a certain responsibility to our potential, but at the same time, simultaneously, we're members of the community. And you simply can't realize your full potential unless you're actualizing both aspects, you as a community member and you as an individual. And, you know, like I say, the, 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 the shift of emphasis in, in, in pop culture today is so radically toward us as individuals that it really gives a very warped, you know, warped expression of full actualization, which is also actualizing ourselves as, as, as people who are doing things for other people as well. In fact, you know, there's, there's a story, and I'm going to just wrap it up. I'm sorry, it's like, um, just wrap it up with uh, just two very quick stories. One is that there was someone who was just, saw one of the Rebbes, I heard this from Reb Shlomo, that, and this guy was filthy and just like, just at the end, the guy who just was really in really bad shape. And he went to see the Rebbe, and then sometime later he came back, and he was like clean and together, and he had just gotten his act together in a very real way. And the person had seen the before and after, and he went up to him and he said, what did the Rebbe tell you? I mean, you've turned your entire life around. And he said, the Rebbe told me a half an hour a day I have to just think, spend thinking about other people. You know, so, so you see that each side helps the other side. That becoming a better community member actually makes you into a better individual as well. So there are very real benefits, even in a selfish way, uh, oddly enough, to being someone who's outwardly devoted to other people. Okay, the other thing is, just one of my all-time favorite stories, and we'll end with this, which is that um, someone went to see the Rishner Rebbe. And um, the son of the Rishner Rebbe was, uh, was kind of out in the hallway, and he was uh, a little kid, but he, he went on to become a, 
the uh, I believe it was the, the Rebbe of Chernovitz. Um, and uh, anyway, but he was a young kid at the time. And someone went in to see his father, the Rishner Rebbe. And he seemed very, very, very preoccupied. And he comes out from seeing the Rebbe. And the, the, the son was like so taken with, you know, how this man just looked a, a thousand times better. And he said, what did, what did my father, the Rebbe, tell you? And he said, uh, the Rebbe said that Hashem will help. And the little boy said back to him, um, well, what are you going to do until Hashem helps? And the man's face fell. <laughs> and he said to the man, go back in and ask my father. And the man goes back in and he comes back out with a big smile on his face. And the boy said, what, what did my father say? And he said, until Hashem helps, Hashem will help. <laughs> and that's all of life right there. Okay, Hashem should bless us with a great, sweet, beautiful, awesome year. Yeah.